Welcome back to the Bridge Builder Podcast, an initiative of the Minnesota Catholic Conference. In each episode of the Bridge Builder, we help you connect your faith to life and discipleship in the public arena. I'm Jason Adkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and joining me in studio is my co-host of the Bridge Builder Podcast, Rachel Herbeck, our Minnesota Catholic Conference Policy and Outreach Coordinator. Great to be here, Jason. These are always fun. It's a delight. First, a big thank you to Relevant Radio 1330 AM for use of their recording studio and to our sponsor for this edition of the Bridge Builder Podcast, the Knights of Columbus, Minnesota State Council. The Knights of Columbus are building the domestic church. Today, we're here to chat a little bit about what our broken immigration system looks like on the ground. What impact is it having on real people and real families? And we're blessed today to speak with a Minnesota Catholic, Lisa Kramer, joining us from Southwest Minnesota, where Lisa has answered the call to be a faithful citizen and really embraced the, the, the directive, the, the challenge to be a faithful citizen, live her discipleship, and she's created an organization called Familias Juntas, or Families Together. So we'll talk with Lisa today about that organization, her drive to help immigrants and immigrant families, and what she sees of our broken immigration system from on the ground in southwest Minnesota. In our classic Catholic social teaching segment, we're discussing the encyclical of Pope Pius XI from 1937, Mitt Brennender Sorga, of Burning Concern, a surprisingly uh, and unfortunately timely encyclical about the challenges the church in Germany was facing prior to World War II with the Nazi regime and dealing with uh, the fallout of the impact of the Nazi regime on German society. Finally, in our bricklayer segment, Rachel will tell us a little bit about some practical tips we can do to live out our faithful citizenship today. What um, can we expect in the bricklayer segment, Rachel? Yeah, so many of you uh, may have joined us at Catholics at the Capitol. Um, and so now that, that that has passed, we want to talk about how can we keep the momentum going, especially during the legislative session, to really join together as Catholics, not just for one day, but continuously, and to keep up those relationships with legislators. So we're going to talk about keeping that momentum going um, during, during the rest of the session with other people in your area. Faithful citizenship is not something you do in the early part of November with the ballot box. It's a year-round activity, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Fantastic. Well, joining us on the line now, snowed in in her home in southern Minnesota is Lisa Kramer, the head of Familias Juntas. Lisa, welcome. Thank you. Thank you both for inviting me. Wonderful. It's great to be with you. Thank you for your work uh, in the mission field and on behalf of the vulnerable in our society, migrants and those seeking a better life and just trying to build uh, build a better life for themselves here in Minnesota. Why don't you tell uh, our listeners a little bit about yourself and your background? And uh, I think it's going to really inspire people in the sense that uh, you're just a person in the pew who took the initiative to do something beautiful for God. So just share a little about yourself, Lisa, and then we'll talk about Familias Juntas and what you're seeing um, with regard to our immigration system. Okay, well, you know, I really think of myself as just a very ordinary mom, farm wife, and now I'm a grandma, too. So um, I came into the Catholic Church in 1996, and I was raised in a very um, faithful Lutheran family before that. But my journey into Catholicism has been something that's very profound and changed my life very much. And it was I was in my mid-30s when, when I came into the Church, and it was at that time that I really started to seek God's plan for my life and started to pay attention to what God was doing in my life. And because of the support of 
my wonderful husband, um, at that point in time, I was able to go back to school, even with a fairly young family, and I got a degree in theology, and then I later was able to complete a master's in servant leadership. And in 2002, I made my profession as a secular Franciscan, and all of those things have really shaped my, my person, but also my Catholicism. And especially being a Franciscan has led me into a very active life of living the gospel. And after that educational period, I spent 17 years working in a, several different parishes around southwestern Minnesota, and mainly doing faith formation. So that's my story, I guess. Great. Yeah. I love that phrase that you use of, of it. Really, all those things coming together really helped you live an active life of the gospel. And I think that's something that we've we've heard from, you know, our recent popes and um, talking about evangelization. And, and I think sometimes there's a misconception that that has to look the same for everybody, you know, and that looks like one particular path. Um, but I think that's why your story is so great. And it's so great to have you here. Um, so diving into, you know, that active life of the gospel, can you talk a little bit about the roots of Familias Juntas? You know, why? Why did you start that? What was your path to starting that? And then maybe explaining for our listeners a little bit of what it, what its purpose is and what it's about. Mm. Well, you know, when we speak about the journey and and how things develop in our life and how God leads, when we're in the midst of it, we don't really see what's happening. And sure. in retrospect, you see yeah. God was leading you to this place all along. And for me, it started back in 2002 when I was doing campus ministry at Southwest Minnesota State University in Marshall, we took a, a mission trip to Guatemala, mm. a spring break trip. And that was a profound experience for me and, and changed my my life and, and made me aware of what was going on with people in some of those Central American countries at that time and how what the struggle was for those people, what it had been for, for decades already. And we visited a mission that the Diocese of New Ulm had sponsored for many years, 50-some years, in San Lucas Toliman. And I didn't know if I'd ever go back when I left, and I told that to Father Greg Schaefer, who was the priest there at the time. And I said, I, I don't know if I'll ever come back, but I know I will carry these people in my heart always, and I will tell their story as much as I possibly can. Mm-hmm. Well, I did go back. It was about five years later when I was working in another parish, and the people wanted to take a trip, and they asked me to arrange it. I did go back a couple of times and really felt that connection with the people of Guatemala and the mission in, in San Lucas. Um, and then it was in, I started working in Worthington at St. Mary's Church in 2010. And it was there that I first met people from Central America here for the first time mm. and started to really understand what their immigration issues were and, and what their sacrifices had been, what their lives were like and was able to make that connection with the people that I had met in Guatemala. Sure, yeah. At one point, I was planning a trip to go to Guatemala with a group from St. Mary's, and one of my Guatemalan friends came to me and said to me, she said, do you think you could go visit my mom when you're in Guatemala? She says, I have not seen my mom in 15 years, Wow. and I can't go see her because of my status. Mm. But if you would go see her for me and give her a hug for me, that would mean so much to me. And so all of a sudden that journey took on a whole different trajectory. And we did end up going to visit some of the families of the people who lived in Worthington and made those connections. And during that whole experience, I I felt so guilty. You know, I felt guilty because 
I could go visit their families and they couldn't. Mm. And But they all had, many of them had children that were born here that were U.S. citizens' children. And the idea came to us that maybe we could take those kids to visit their grandparents for the first time. Oh, wow. And that's really how Familias Juntas started. We took those kids, and some of them met not only their grandparents, but other family members. Some of them met older siblings that had been left behind that they had never met. Oh, wow, yeah. And that was such a profound experience and was documented in a film called Abrazos that we have been able to share throughout the years. So that's the beginning of Familias Juntas. Um, but we've developed and changed and grown and done into different areas. We're not doing trips with children anymore right now at this point in time. But we do do a lot of other advocacy things. And we do continue to work with the youth. We have a summer youth leadership, servant leadership program called Dream Catchers that we run. This will be our 2019 will be our fourth summer of doing that program, developing the leadership of children of immigrants between the ages of 9 and 15. So that's kind of exciting. That is exciting and just a, a great story of, of how um, steps in your journey led you to Familias Juntas. Sometimes we have a sense that, you know, what we're doing right now in our apostolic life or in our discipleship is the thing that we're called to do, but it's it's ultimately um, there might be something greater down the road to which we're called or called to begin and uh, different st- watching the different steps and listening to the different steps on your journey, Lisa, lead you to start Familias Juntas is a really great story. Share with us a little bit about the changes in Familias Juntas that, you know, the the things that you saw on the ground that helped you transition from just doing trips uh, for kids to more uh, working more on the advocacy plane or on the advocacy space. What are some of the things that you saw that motivated you to broaden the mission of Familias Juntas? One of the things I learned from Father Greg Schaefer at the mission in, in Guatemala at San Lucas, we used to talk a lot, and he said that when you're working with a population, you always need to be guided by their expressed felt need. You need to listen to what they need and then act upon it with them, not separate from them, but involving them. And so for us at Familias Juntas, that's always kind of been the core of who we are. And so we've moved on. You know, we listen to what what the need is now, and sometimes that changes throughout time. So we have done things like um, one of the things we do is we provide transportation to immigrants to immigration court, which is in the Twin Cities, a a good three-and-a-half-hour trip from here, which is a real challenge if you don't have a driver's license um, or know your way around the Twin Cities. So we've provided volunteer drivers who take people there and also accompany them, just be with them. In the courtroom, we just sit, we don't say anything, but we're just there for them. And people tell us that means so much. You know, when they have an immigration um, appointment, that can be very overwhelming and frightening for people who don't speak the language well and don't really know the system. So we that's one of the things we've done. We've also, we advocate for people who end up being incarcerated, usually due to immigration issues, um, and also provide support for their families and provide support for people who are in the deportation process and their families, because all of that is so confusing when you're not familiar with the culture. Mm, Sure. And I love those examples because, I mean, it just shows even within, you know, your organization of what you're doing, you know, in your corner of the vineyard, just the diversity of ways that um, 
of needs to be filled, you know, ways to advocate for people, ways to get involved. And so just even the creativity, um, you know, you say among the changing need and how do we fill these changing needs um, for people. So I think I think that's awesome. And so on the kind of on the advocacy advocacy side, as Jason um, was saying, I think for a lot of people, advocacy in general is a hard concept to to grasp. You know, it's it's scary. It seems like, oh, then I have to go to D.C. or I have to do this or do that. Um, so can you tell a little bit about your experience with advocacy and, you know, talk a little bit about what has been the most effective um things that you've done in advocacy or that your organization has done on such a difficult issue like immigration? Mm-hmm. One of the things I think I've learned is that um, I, I never thought, even as a U.S. citizen, because I'm not a politician, I'm not into that kind of stuff, I'm not in a powerful position in any way, I thought I had no power, but I found out that's not true. Mm-hmm. I have a lot more um, ability to advocate for people than I realized. And I've seen so many examples of people who are trying to maybe get something that's rightfully theirs or be listened to so that they can take care of something in their lives. And they're not respected and they're not listened to. And someone like myself or one of our volunteers can go to that same, into that same situation with them and all of a sudden it's different, which makes me very angry because I think everybody should be listened to and respected. But sometimes we have the ability to use our powers, little as it may seem to us, to help others to be listened to. And and that's just something very simple that anybody in our society can do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we talk about being a voice for the voiceless, and it, it sounds like a, a nice slogan, but uh, it's really making it concrete. That's one of the important calls of the church, uh, especially with a preferential option for the poor, is to reach out and be that voice for those who can't uh, speak for themselves or don't know how, and then help them to do so. So thank you for what you're doing. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's not just being a voice for the voiceless, although we're often called to do that, but also to try and find opportunities for them to speak their own voice, because they can do that. And Mm -hmm. if they're given the opportunity, people's stories are very, very powerful, and they need to be heard. And so the more we can allow people to tell their own stories, the more it changes the hearts of those listening to them. Indeed, people, you need to see beyond the spread. In public policy, sometimes we need to look beyond the spreadsheets mm-hmm. and the numbers and hear the actual voice of the people who are impacted by our policies. And you've done a great job with that. And we've partnered in events in the past where you've helped us share those stories with elected officials. So thank you for that. Mm-hmm. Lisa, what's sure. one thing that people need to know about the broken immigration system? If there's one thing among the many challenges and problems, what would you want our listeners to hear? Those that maybe haven't gotten involved in the issue, uh, for whatever reason, but um, you know, what's the one thing that they need to hear that might compel them to look at the issue differently or move from supportive of immigration reform to really committed to working for it? I think people need to understand that our system really is broken and that it does need reform very, very badly. Very often people will say to me when they hear I'm working with people who are undocumented, they say, well, why don't they just come here legally? Or if they've been here 20 or 30 years, why don't they just go down and file the paperwork and and become legal. People don't realize that that's not a possibility for a lot of our immigrants because there is no path. There is no line for them to get into. Even for people who have lived here a really long time, people who have lived in the shadows and worked quietly some of the the worst jobs that we have to offer in this country, Um, people who have raised their children here, they've been faithful in their church 
and and express their love for God, and they've not committed any crimes. Those people don't have a past very often, and we we need to keep those families together, even though they're very often faced with or threatened by deportation, because so many of them have U.S. citizen children. And I see the kids and and what they've suffered through and what their concerns are because they know their families are at jeopardy. And I just see these kids who are wonderful kids and think no child, no U.S. citizen child in this country should have to live with that fear. And so we really, really need immigration reform that finds a place for those people who have been here a long time, who have raised families, and who are good people that want to stay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the the fear of having your parents at any moment taken from you has just got to be um, unbearable on some level. Mm-hmm. Wow, something you can't even imagine, right? Yeah. And the kids have lived, some of the kids have lived through, you know, immigration coming and knocking at their door and having to be the one to talk to them. And so, yeah, kids shouldn't have to do that. They shouldn't have to go through that. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, a lot of that, too, in in some of what you're saying is not only letting our legislators hear those stories, but, you know, we have to encounter those people and and hear and enter into their stories as well to really be able to advocate um, for them so that people are not other to us, but they're really um, there um, living lives with us in our communities. Um, Lisa, how can our listeners follow your example? I love what you said at the beginning. You said, um, that you just see yourself as a regular citizen and a wife and um, a mom, and you've done so much. And so some of our listeners might be like, well, that's great for her, but I, I don't know if I could really do that or um, be inspired. So do you have any advice or suggestions for, one, where can someone begin if they don't know where to start, and how can people really follow your example and step into the public square? Hmm. Well, I think the first thing you do is pray and then listen, because if you pray... God will speak and God will inspire. And mm-hmm. if if you're called to work with immigrants, if you're called to, to try and change things with our immigration in this country, you need to get to know them. You need to, it's like you just said, Rachel, you know, you need to get to know your neighbors who are immigrants or get to know the folks at your church who are immigrants and listen to their stories or other organizations and schools. Wherever the immigrants are, you should try to be there and, and listen to them and and it will soon become clear. <laughs> God will take it from there, I think, because I believe that if we open our hearts and we try to see Jesus in the faces of our immigrant brothers and sisters and try to show our love for them, God's love for them, that we will soon find out what God has given us to do. Mm-hmm. It, I think it becomes increasingly apparent when, <laughs> when we follow those, those things. Lisa, your witness and... Uh thoughts today are that you've shared with us are really a real blessing. Um, thank you for being with us. And mm-hmm. uh, we wish you the very best as you continue to advocate uh, for immigrants and their families. And where can people go if they want to find out more and help your organization? Um, we have a Facebook page. You just have to look for Familias Juntas and you should be able to find our Facebook page. And that's where we give out the most information about things we're doing. Um, and also we can be Contacted by email. You want me to give you our email? Yeah, please. It's familias juntas, which is long in Spanish. Familias juntas dot mn at gmail dot com. Wonderful. And the great thing about a podcast is people can rewind and get that. So again, that's familias juntas dot mn at gmail 
Com. Lisa Kramer, a blessing to be with you. Thank you so much for joining us today, and God bless the work of Familias Juntas. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. My okay. pleasure. And we'll be back in a moment. Okay. Today in our classic Catholic social teaching segment, we're talking about Mit Brennender Sorga of Burning Concern, would be the translation from the German, and encyclical of Pope Pius XI from 1937. Note the date, 1937. So at the height of uh, the Nazis coming to power in Germany and at the same time prior to World War II, what was going on in Germany at that time, the historical context matters in 19. Uh, 33, the new Nazi German government, the church signed a con- what's called a concordat, basically a peace treaty in some level, that shared uh, the re- reciprocal rights and duties between church and state. Uh, the church was facing a hostile anti-Christian Nazi regime and wanted to protect the rights of the faithful within the context of this anti-Christian regime to practice their faith. And as Pope Pius XI says in the encyclical, not pull out the wheat while attacking the cockle. Um, in a very some very sharp turns of phrase in this encyclical, but timely for a number of reasons, I think, as the church enters into similar concordats today uh, with governments like China and Vietnam, communist governments, um, you know, and then here those concordats in 1937 were not working out as planned. Obviously, the Nazis were not honoring those in a number of ways, and so Pope Pius XI writes to the bishops of Germany. Um, giving them uh, guidance and exhortation to stay strong in the Christian faith and to boldly proclaim the Christian faith, even even really in the context of a, uh, a re- revived paganism in Germany. And we'll say a little bit more about that in a moment, but just want to set the table with a little bit more context too. So as the church today is entering into concordats with regimes to protect the Christian faithful, to allow the gospel to be preached in countries that are at least officially on paper, like China, anti-Christian, right? They're communist countries, irreligious. Um, they're bulldozing in some instances homes. They just did in Vietnam, a similar communist country in which one of these concordats existed. But at the same time, dealing with a regime, um, you know, uh, on on one side of the political spectrum, why did Nazism uh, come to power in Germany? There's a number of reasons, of course. But one is a reaction to um, the failure of small L liberalism, uh, to provide a stable social order that uh, allowed people to have economic security and uh, peace and prosperity in post-World War I Germany, but at the same time also the rise of Marxism. And uh, despite Nazism being called National Socialism, it was uh, putatively anti-communist as well. And so within the reaction in Germany to that, uh, cut the, pres- the strong presence of communism, uh, Nazism came to power. How does the church deal with these issues um, and challenges from both the right and the left. And I think we're facing somewhat of a similar set of challenges today, which I think, which is why I think Pope Pius XI is one of our most important popes to go back and revisit because we're dealing with a, a similar breakdown for many in the liberal order, um, not providing the benefits and the peace and the participation in democratic processes that have been promised. People are disenchanted with it um, on both right and left. Um, what what happens in that in that context? And it seems that every radical reaction on one side leads to even ever more radical reaction on the other. And where does the church, um, you know, how does the church transcend that unfortunate polarization in society? 
Um, and this is one aspect, not speaking so much to challenges on the left um, from regimes, but on this one, challenges from what was fa- the fascist right. So really a timely encyclical for us as our political system becomes more polarized. People are, again, paying attention to authoritarian politics, particularly with a racial bent to it. And I think that's an important component of this is it's a strong stand against anti-Semitism. Yeah, I've actually never re- had never read this document before. And so it was great to be able to to dive into it um, for the podcast, particularly. And there were a number of things you, you mentioned, um, Pope Pius XI's sharp turns of phrase. And there are many among here. But to, to echo what you're saying, I love the strength of the document. And I think the particularity of the strength and into not in a disrespectful way, but a way that really communicates to the whole document to the bishops, you know, we're not going to back down on what we know is the best for our people in Germany. And it provides really a I felt a hopeful sense reading this document, you know, for our current times. Um, the strength of the language was really encouraging and inspiring. And I think is something that makes Pope Pius XI someone to look back at. And it really speaks to this question of identity that we've Mm -hmm. talked about on the podcast before, right? Like Nazism shaping what it believed to be German identity, Mm -hmm. pre-Christian. And he talks about that, the sort of pre-Christian romanticization with a pre-Christian past in Germany rooted in pagan Norse mythology, right? Um, the, the classics, the classics anthem of the, the Nazi regime, Wagner's Ride of the Valkyries, mm-hmm. right? Um, the sort of romantic notion of a pre-Christian pagan past, which, again, you see in our culture today, this sort of romantic sense that before Christianity came, before um, our, our Christian societies, there was this pre-Christian, pre-Columbian romantic past that we need to get back to. Um, so you see these questions of identity coming out again and again. Who are we as a people? Mm-hmm. Is it in race? Is it in some pre-Christian culture? There's mm-hmm. some identity of blood and soil nationalism. Right. Um, or is it really in our Christian identity that the way in which Christianity has shaped German culture? So what's the true identity? And Pope Pius XI is saying you can be German, mm-hmm. but part of being German is being Christian and not right. not neglecting our past and forging mm-hmm. an authentic German identity rooted in Christians or Germany's Christian past. And that's mm-hmm. really where the nations of Europe, we know nations and the, the way nations came to be in Europe, the modern nations, precisely because they trace their date to the founding of the bringing of the gospel to those places. Mm-hmm. And, and that's sure. an important theme in this encyclical. Yeah. And to go off that point, there was one just little paragraph that I um, really liked going off that point. He says, whoever exalts race or the people or the state or a particular form of state or the depositories of power or any other fundamental value of the human community, however necessary and honorable be their function and worldly things, whoever raises these notions above their standard value and divinizes them to an adulterous, idolatrous level, not adulterous, idolatrous uh, level, distorts and perverts an order of the world planned and created by God. He is far from the true faith in God and from the concept of life which that faith upholds. And I think we, as you're mentioning, I think we're, we're seeing this as kind of a swapping of identity sometimes. And it's sometimes it's not as obvious as it was with, you know, the Nazis who are putting clearly a certain race over another who are putting state in a very strong way. But I think we see that pervasively, you know, even how we deal sometimes with with policy issues or deal with different things is it kind of pervades even sometimes the Christian mindset, you know, of of is really the order of God the the number one or is it kind of even with, 
you know, even with our with our conversation with Lisa Kramer about, you know, immigration, are we how are we dealing with the immigration issue? And is this kind of thought process pervading our minds at all in terms of where the the presence of the state or the presence of nationalism is in relation to um, where we're putting the principles of God? And trying to avoiding the temptation of allowing the enemy of our enemy to be our friend, right? Mm-hmm. Of course, we always have to love our enemies, but sure. let's let's be frank and honest that anti-religious sentiment, anti-Catholic sentiment is very strong and on the rise mm-hmm. on today's political left in our society. Um, that can't be disputed. The challenge is, is, do we make the enemy of our enemy the friend? So if a secular nationalist party or ideology um, that plays footsie or less, more or less so with racial politics. Mm-hmm. You know, do we align ourselves with that simply because they're the enemy, the friend, the, the enemy of our enemy is our friend, right? Mm-hmm. And I think this is that this encyclical speaks to that reality is that many people, uh, many Christians in the 1930s in various countries, Italy, Spain, Portugal, Germany, mm-hmm. um, aligned themselves with parties that were, if not explicitly anti Christian, implicitly in their ideology mm-hmm. anti Christian, simply because they opposed the communists, right? Mm-hmm. And as communism and more radical left wing politics are on the rise in this country today, do we, not do we, but how can we make sure we don't fall into the opposite trap of, of aligning ourselves with another secular nationalist? anti-Christian and really mm-hmm. pagan ideology simply because the enemy we think the enemy of our enemy is our friend, but ultimately it uns, ends up undermining, as Christians did who aligned themselves with the Nazis in World War II, it undermines the gospel witness going mm-hmm. forward. Yeah, and as Pope Pius talks about um, in here in, in regards to kind of that relationship, I love the language he uses is talking about, um, you know, the peak of revelation is in the gospel, right? The peak of revelation is in, in Jesus Christ and what we've been what has been revealed to us through the faith. And he says it knows no retouches by human hand, you know? So it's not this thing of we've been revealed to this and then, you know, we can, we can align ourselves with um, these other political parties that will kind of help us form and shape and, you know, retouch as he puts it, which often happens, you know, when we align ourselves with our enemy's enemy. Um, But really, you know, do we believe that, you know, that, that this, this is the peak of revelation. Indeed. So much here to unpack. Uh, we can only spend a little time with it, but we hope it's provided a little bit of an introduction and context of this important encyclical. Again, revisiting Pope Pius XI's encyclicals are extremely important because we live in strangely similar times, not to be too ominous about it, but Mitt Brennan der Sorga, 1937, definitely worth revisiting. We'll be back in a moment. Never willing to leave Catholics without something practical to do in our Bridge Builder podcast. We have the brick layer segment. We got to build a robust social order that protects life and dignity at all stages from conception, natural death. Um, We got to do so brick by brick. That's why we call it the brick layer segment. And oftentimes in politics, we think in terms of the big battles on big sort of existential questions, right, or big economic questions. And the wins and losses that go along with those. But actually, the, the daily grind of politics, the daily work uh, of politics is done brick by brick, small, incrementally, and patiently. And uh, that's why we try to equip you with the tools to be an effective brick layer, not to build too many analogies in there. But that's that's it. That, and so, Rachel, what are we going to talk about today in terms of practical tips for people to live faithful citizenship on a day-to-day level? 
Right. So, you know, we're here. We're in session now, but post-Catholics um, at the Capitol, we've, we had talked about that on the podcast many times, and maybe some of you listeners were able to join us um, with many others from Minnesota at Catholics at the Capitol. And really a big, if you were able to join us, you know you know um, this, but if you weren't, um, a big part of that day was meeting and building relationships with legislators and other people from our legislative districts, other Catholics, um, talking about these different issues. And so whether you were there or not, this is a really good opportunity to, to build off of that. And so to both continue to build relationships with your legislators and other Catholics. Um, so if you were with us at Catholics at the Capitol, you know, now that the event is over, um, it's a really great opportunity to stay in touch or to get back in touch with those that were in your district group at the event. Um, so who who was there in your group? Hopefully you exchanged some contact information. And so can you get in touch with each other? Um, we encourage you to get in touch with each other and actually meet as a group after Catholics at the Capitol um, now that that's done, if possible, and really discuss how as a group in our area can we move these issues forward and then uh, make a commitment together to, you know, invite your legislators to coffee as a group to follow up, um, to follow up on that relationship started. And if you're listening and you weren't there, um, this is a good indication for you that now you have other people in your district, other Catholics that you know um, are with you, you know, that you know are your allies. And so start reaching out at your parish, maybe. Are there other Catholics at your parish that are interested in these issues or that went to Catholics at the Capitol? And so we would encourage you to, to take a step out uh, maybe outside of your box to reach out to some other people, other Catholics in your community to see um, if they want to get together on some of these issues and want to invite your legislators out. That's right. Out of sight, out of mind comes to my mind here, mm-hmm. right? In the sense that um, if your legislator is not hearing from you and your concerns, then they're going to forget about those concerns, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's perfectly legitimate uh, after Catholics at the Capitol to keep that relationship going. Or if you've made a couple of phone calls, continue to make phone calls, mm-hmm. not in an overbearing way or an overburdensome way, but at the same time, it's perfectly legitimate for people to maintain regular communications and they, and you are not bugging them. Yeah, no. Right. They need to hear from you. They need to be reminded about commitments they've made to you on legislation. Um, they need to be informed about new legislation that hasn't been on their radar constituent contacts with legislators are so important. And there's not that many of them. I mean, mm-hmm. people are really surprised. They think the phone at the Capitol is ringing off the hook, and it really isn't. So right. a few committed voices can really, really make the difference with a state legislator. Mm-hmm. And just because Catholics at the Capitol is over doesn't mean um, the work and the advocacy and the involvement is over, right? It's not, um, as we said at the beginning, is not just one day um, to be a faithful citizen, but we're still we're still in session here. You know, some of the issues that we we talked about, even at Catholics at the Capitol, um, we're still working on them. You know, and so session is still going, and so there's still chances to advocate on specific issues, and it's still a great time to to continuously make your voices heard. And legislators, oftentimes. Every Saturday morning in district, they'll meet at a certain coffee shop and just hear people's concerns. They've got town halls. So you don't necessarily even have to set it up. You can just show up if mm-hmm. you're on your legislator's email list, which is another mm-hmm. great reminder, as most legislators, if not all, 
have an email list that you can sign up for and receive regular updates from them about what they're, and then you know what they're really concerned about and really looking at as mm-hmm. well. And that's really easy because you can just go to their page on the Minnesota House or the Minnesota Senate website, and all of them have a tab that's an option that says join my email list. So that's a really easy way to do that. So we've given you a lot um, in this little segment to to do um, and to take, take step forward to keep building those bridges and laying those bricks. So go ahead and do it. <laughs> Rachel does an amazing job uh, helping people live their faith in the public arena. Thank you, Rachel, for all the great work that you're doing both at the Capitol and in parishes and with people in the pew. If you've got ideas, questions, concerns about how to be an effective faithful citizen, give us a call. Visit our website, mncatholic.org. Give Rachel a call uh, at our number, 651-227-8777, and she can talk you through the basics Um, it's a lot easier than you think. Again, a big thank you to Relevant Radio 1330 AM and our sponsor, the Minnesota State Council of the Knights of Columbus. The Knights of Columbus are building the domestic church. And thank you for listening. Make sure to share this podcast with all of your friends and family and even some of your enemies as well. They might benefit too. What better way to love your enemy than share with them the Minnesota Catholic Converts Bridge Builder (laughs) podcast? And what better way to end a podcast of great conversation than with great sacred music? Here is Hymnus Angelicus with angelic hymns in remembrance of St. Scholastica, whose feast day is February 10th. St. Scholastica and her twin brother, St. Benedict, lived in the 5th century. Scholastica, like her brother, also took religious vows to the Benedictine order. Here is the Gregorian Chant School of St. John's Abbey and University performing Hymnus Angelicus. Thanks very much. God bless you. <laughs>